Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're listening to Wish We Knew What To Say with me, Pragya Agarwal. How do you talk to your child about discrimination, privilege, power, race, and racism? This is a podcast about talking with children about race. Covering all ages from toddler to teen, in each episode, I meet with a parent, carer, or educator to hear their experiences of having these vital conversations. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Today, I have great pleasure in having Candice Brethwaite here with me. Um, and I am really looking forward to speaking with her. As you probably all know, Candice is a Brixton-born mother of two. She's the co-founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, which is a huge, huge personal um, interest of me um, because we don't see as many black and brown mothers in the mainstream media. So Make Motherhood Diverse is a platform which showcases that motherhood does not follow a singular path. She now lives in Stony Stratford near Milton Keynes. Candice is an author, campaigner and influencer. Her debut book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, was published this year, in which she examines issues such as unconscious bias, microaggression and white privilege. She's currently working on her second book, Sister Sister, Her Family, um, is her husband and two children, which um, I'm sure Candice would tell you a little bit more about. And she co-hosts the Pillow Talk podcast with her husband, Papa B. And uh, I, so welcome, Candice. It's so lovely to have you here. No, thank you for having me. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Good. So we were just talking about children going back to school and how difficult lockdown was for um, small children. So you have two children, Candice, don't you? Could you tell us a little bit more about them? Of course. I have a two-year-old son, um, RJ Richard Jr., and a six-year-old daughter, Esme Olivia. And yeah, um, it, it, we're, in, we're, in, we're in the early years still. It's tough times. The first mm -hmm. lockdown was um, really hard on both their mental health. And as we approach, you know, I don't know when this will go out, but as we approach the second lockdown now, I, for one, am very grateful that schools are trying to stay open. The fact is, if the numbers get too high, 
I will willingly take my children out of school, you know, lives before school. But um, Esme, especially at six, not going to school, she just became so introverted and depressed and quiet. So um, I'm happy that schools are open. Exactly. Um, and as I was saying, my four-year-old twins, they were really struggling, even though they have each other. Um, mm. They were talking about being sad and when is the illness going to go away? And they were really craving company with children of their own age. So, yeah, let's see how it happens and what happens and just keeping our fingers crossed. But today we are talking about how to talk with our children about race and racism. And I know, Candice, you've written a lot about this and talked about this as well. So when did you first become aware of the importance of talking about race and racism with your own children? When did I become I think I think when you are the person of color, black or brown minority or um ethnic other, I think you're always aware that conversation has to happen really early on. Um especially because I moved my children, my it was one child and I was pregnant then out of London and moved to a very white area. I was like, right, so this conversation is not going to wait till she's 11, surely. I was thinking eight, nine. The situation got taken out of my hands when one day at school, a a four-year-old white girl refused to play with Esme because she was black. And then, you know, I had the teacher call me and I had to go in and meet the head teacher. And so we had the conversation when Esme was four, which is very shocking, especially for me, who even though my work is centred in um, talking about bias and racism because I'd always grown up in London. I had always seen myself in one capacity or another. So having to have that conversation with a four-year-old, it's still, to this day, one of the harsher moments in parenting, I think. And and it was a grave realisation for my husband, who was born in Nigeria, so has the DNA of someone who thinks they run the world. It's really quite excellent to watch. He, and for a really long time when we were dating in the early days, he would borderline say what I would feel were microaggressions. He'd ask me if I was sure. He was like, are you, are you sure they thought you were going to steal that thing? Are you sure that security guard was following you? And it would cause a few hiccups in our relationship because I was like, I'm not insane. But then we had children and that situation happening to Esme really sobered him up and made him understand that um, if you are black or brown, born in the UK especially, you understand what a minority you are from the beginning. Um, So yeah, sorry to go off on a tangent. We had the conversation really early. That's really heartbreaking, isn't it? To mm-hmm. hear and to have to talk to your children about that at such a young age and to make them aware of how they might be seen differently. We live in a very white area, so I can relate to that. My children were are the only children of colour, which is really unusual at this time of this during these times to go to a nursery and also the school where the only children brown mixed heritage, they're mixed heritage, my husband's white. Um, And so they don't see anybody who's brown or black except me and their older sister who's who's brown as well. And so it is it is really uh, on one hand, I'm quite nervous about them growing up in such an undiverse environment and how they see the world and how they make their sense of their own identity. But also we went um, recently to uh, um, just on a shopping spree during lockdown and I had an incident where a white man shouted and screamed at me 
about things, uh, which is a long story, but they were in the car with me, just the three of us. And I started crying as I was driving away. And then we had to call the police and we had to report the incident and the police came over. So they were really nervous about what was going on. Why was that my man shouting at us, mommy? And what is, why is the police here? And so I had to have a little conversation with them as well about it. But it was really tricky for me because I don't want them to think of white people as evil because their father is white, but also they don't want to generalize and stereotype everybody. And so it was really tricky. How did you manage this conversation? I think I was I was clearly more prepared than her dad. And we, after speaking with the school, the head teacher admitted they were having a real problem with racism because they had found that some children in key stage one were coming from homes who supported National Front beliefs. And they had been working with a charity called Prevent, which deals with um, extremism and terrorism within children. And when she said that, every parenting alarm bell just went off. I thought, actually, I could speak to you, I could speak to this child's parents, but this is a problem that's already embedded within the school. That it, It's that simple. And what we found is that, and this is really strange, what we found is that when I investigated private schools in our area, that's where all the black kids were. And I was so surprised. And it was a, it was a double-edged sword because perhaps my surprise was that I'm from a working-class London family who always saw private education as this really esoteric thing that I could never reach. So it shocked me to see Black kids just in that system with much ease. And also it made me realise that um, for some reason, Black parents in our area have decided they have to pay for certain support within the education system. So we moved Esme to private school, which I still suffer with. There is a guilt there, which sometimes I laugh at myself. I'm like, and if parents win the lottery, what's the first thing you're gonna do? They're like, come on, Candice, get over yourself. But there is a guilt and there is a sadness because I didn't have to go to private school in London just to see myself or just to feel like because of my race, I wasn't gonna have a bad day. And it does make me worry for the black and brown people who should rightfully want to move anywhere in this empire that their ancestors have contributed to and feel like they can send their kids to school and it not be a problem. Not everyone's going to have access to that resource. And so having that conversation with her and understanding as ever, the education starts at home, the love for self starts at home, really doubling down on certain books, um, her dad being more open than ever about Nigerian culture and his heritage. That's how we've dealt with things. Um, and it's been, it's, it's been an uphill struggle. I do think she is secure in herself, but she's only six. And I remember how impacted I was by the judgments and words of others at school. So, and now it's made me very, very um, nervous. I'm always on the lookout for a tiny thing because I need to be able to nip it in the bud really early on. Yeah, that's really fascinating what you say about schools and private schools, I think. Um, 
similar experience, although we were in Croydon, East Croydon, um, I had to send my older daughter to private school because she was mm. having a lot of pr problems at the local state school. And similarly, my husband is white, so he, so he carries a lot of white privilege with him and a white man um, growing up. And he just assumed a lot of things and mm. a, a bit different from your circumstances, but he also would say things like, are you sure? I'm sure it's not malicious. I'm sure they haven't, they didn't mean it. And it really upset. And I think having children has, again, now smaller children has made him realize much more about, and he's really doing the learning himself about how to acknowledge these things and these privileges and how mm. people perceive people differently because of their skin color. And he's really, really been doing the work, but it has been a challenge for him, of mm. course, to acknowledge that. Um, and and I think that is really sad and disappointing that you have to send your children to uh, to pay for your, their education to find a safe environment, which should be a right for them. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, no, it's, it's 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 challenging to make them aware of their culture and heritage, especially if they're growing up in a different world completely. Yeah, and a world a world that doesn't readily support support their culture or uplift it as equal or even in a lot of cases better you know I'm I'm British born and bred but I'm always going to choose Caribbean African or Indian food over bangers and mash like let's just be honest but those things aren't even upheld or spoken about and I remember the head teacher of her old school where the racist incident happened was like oh you know would your husband come in and teach and talk to the kids about Africa. And I just thought, oh my gosh. And, and, and I trust you to lead my child. But can you get a bit specific? Africa's a continent. What are you talking about? And how does him speaking about Africa or Nigeria, what does that do? You know, he's not he's not within the school system. He's going to come and talk for half an hour and then be gone. And, you know, again, it was just a massive wake up call about how far our systems have to go in supporting our children and how if you have black or brown kids, there is a lot of work you need to be doing at home. It's not the school day does not end for me at 3.30. We come home, we unpack. And when I ask her how her day was, she knows that's not me just going, oh, did you like your lunch? There is a thread of that where I'm looking for, did anyone ostracize you because of your race? Do you feel like you were picked on because of that? So there's just all this extra baggage. That is that is the weight of motherhood and what you talk about to make motherhood diverse. And I think as a parent of color, you're constantly carrying that weight. You're not mm. feeling light ever, and especially when as a, having children, you're constantly watching out for things and constantly <sighs> looking out for stuff that might make them stand apart or make them feel othered or it, it's it's such a hard journey. And I, I find that educational establishments and schools, as you say, should be doing this work. It should be part of their system. Um, what do you think schools should be doing more? I think the whole edu the whole education system needs an overhaul. I'm very um, passionate about um, there being a broadening of history really early on because you know my daughter's already being taught about Tudors and the Victorians, and I'm very persistent on asking so when do we talk about the transatlantic slave trade when do we talk about the pilfering of sugar and brown and black bodies and tea even the things that are now 
a class that's quintessentially so British are all things that have been stolen. And we just seem to skip those steps. And in skipping those steps, those children that do not see themselves as a Tudor or a Victorian or Roman or whatever feel excluded from the conversation. And if their parents don't know um, or they have no other way of finding out, they think they've contributed nothing to this empire, nothing to this system. So I am all about trying to encourage schools to broaden their historic teachings. I know in key stage three, it comes up as an option to teach about the transatlantic slave trade. I feel like key stage three is too late and I feel like it shouldn't be an option because it's been an option for as long as I've been at school and no teacher ever picked that, ever, ever, ever. Of course you wouldn't, it's too sensitive. No one wants to get into the layers of how people are still affected by those choices that certain systems made. Um, and I know what I'm asking for is a reach and I don't know if I'll see it soon, but I feel like that's the perfect place to start. Then beyond that, there needs to be an opening up of, um, of space for staff and teachers. So even in the school like where Esme was being taught, there were no teachers of colour at all. And even though um, the area we were living in um, was very, uh, the school was very white, the area was still quite multicultural. So I want to know what are the barriers to people of colour coming into the schooling system? And why is it even when they come in? Because I remember going to school and mixed race, black and brown um, people only ever being teaching assistants or dinner ladies or the lollipop man. They were never integrated into where it really mattered. Like I never had, it wasn't until I went to secondary school that I had a black head teacher or I didn't have a black teacher until I was at secondary school. So there's that too. And um, again, I know these things are going to take a while. Yeah, but these things should be happening. They, they should be active initiatives to do this because mm. until children see these role models and representation, how do they know that they belong in that space as well, you know? Exactly. And these stereotypes are created because they might think that people like ourselves or people of color only do certain jobs. They are not going to be teachers or head teachers. Mm. And what you say about history is so right. Children have to see themselves in this history. Children have to know that their heritage and their background and their culture matters, you know. So I Yeah. This is it. And I feel like I was having a, I was on a panel the other day and a conversation about, you know, the FTSE 100 came up and CEOs. And I always tell people in my children's mind, their first CEO is their head teacher. And if your first CEO doesn't look like you or is only ever an older white male, already you have that imprint that people at the top of the leaderboard look a certain way. I was lucky enough in my secondary school to have a black headmistress and a really um, a mixed heritage teaching faculty. But now that we've decided to move out of London, why does that feel like it's the thing you have to be willing to lose? I'm tired of having to make a choice, you know, because people will say, oh, you should have just stayed in London. OK, but one of my primary reasons for moving is because the data surrounding knife crime and gang culture is not lessening. And because the Met and the government 
already in a very secretive way want to do away with what they see as troublesome people, I don't think there'll ever be a cap to that growth. So do I rest on my laurels and say, I love this city and I raise my son here and then he's got he's in a body bag at 15? That's the risk. But then I move out and then what I'm faced with in replacement of that is racism, is microaggressions, is um, me having to pay for my kids to feel supported at school. It's a terrible place to be. It's a terrible place to be. No, the the same kind of conflicts we've faced as well. We live in the Northwest now. Mm. And you can see that as you move out of London and you're making certain choices like being in the countryside or being closer to the sea or whatever you are making these choices of do I choose diversity for my children Mm. or do I choose racism and these (laughs) other things you know so what do you choose and not everybody can afford to live in London either I mean you make certain choices when you have children about what you can afford and not and but that you've talked before about the decision to move out of London because of your son Mm. can you talk a little bit about this I mean the dangers that black men especially face the challenges of bringing up black boys yeah I am And the challenges of bringing up black boys start really early on. So before we're even talking about um, gang culture, within the London school system, um, black boys are written off really early on. So where a white boy would be called energetic, a black boy is immediately labelled as troublesome. And then he gets segregated. And then by age, say, 11, 12, just as they're about to go to secondary school, they get sent to like these sects, these special schools that to me are nothing but baby prisons, preparing them for the prison system. So there's that. And even if you have the ability to keep your son out of a special unit or they haven't been labelled as problematic, you then have street culture to fight with. I have, my brother is 18, um, so he's a lot younger than me. And to watch him grow up in that hot pot is astounding because I will listen to his conversations or watch him walking down the street and he will cross a certain road, like literally one street over because the, the road he was on didn't fall in his postcode. And I'm like, this is so absurd. And then he'll just shrug and be like, well, you know, it is what it is. And I'm like, yeah, but this cannot be how it is. You know, as you can't vouch for anyone. But from what I know of my brother, he goes to college, he holds down a part time job and he minds his business. But he's still very aware of how being on the wrong street at the wrong time can cost him his life. And so when I found out I was having a boy, um, the the conversation, which was always bubbling, that one day we would move out of London, it just reached fever pitch. And we were adamant we had to move before he was born. Because I didn't even want him to get used to a culture that I would have to take him away from. I had already thought about what that could do to Esme and what it did in some respects, you know, moving from a really multicultural nursery to being the only child of colour at a nursery. And I thought, well, if I can get ahead of it with this child, we will. And have we made the right decision again? We don't know. But I just feel, I speak to many mothers of colour who are raising sons in London, who the only reason they won't move is because of money. 
again, it's that, and then it becomes a class privilege. It's like, I would love to get out of this hot pot, but I can't afford to. And maybe not, they can't afford to because of housing costs, but also their um, extended family, that family unit. That's also something we gave up. All of my husband's family live in Nigeria. All of my family live in London. So even when I'm having to fill out the emergency contact at school, I pause because I'm, you know, God forbid I get in a car accident. I'm doing the time on someone rushing up from London. Um, we have had to cultivate relationships with neighbours and our childminder and a friend that lives up the road and ask them to stand in in that moment. So I don't think people really could ever understand um, the idea of trying to save your child's life before they even know it's in danger. My son doesn't understand that as he gets older, at the minute people lay eyes on him, he'll be viewed as a threat. He doesn't understand that yet. And I am aware, you know, I could, I can send them to Oxford and Cambridge. If a policeman wants to pull them over, no one's asking for your degrees or your bank account statement or, oh, what postcode do you live? You're black, you're a threat, we'll sort the rest out later. So I'm, I live in this duality of privilege and being comfortable and trying to be happy about the life I've built for them, but also the grave reality that no amount of money or class buys my kids out of their skin. And I need them to know what people are going to see first. So us leaving London, it's like a game of snakes and ladders. You're just always trying to like stay away from the snake and level up. But it, get, it, it, it gets tough. And it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting to be having to making these decisions and wondering whether it's the right decision and mm. whether your child is going to be comfortable. I mean, my older daughter went to Cambridge, uh, but you know, we know what these institutions are like as well and whether she saw herself in the places and the microaggressions mm. she faced, even being a confident, proud woman, but being called threatening all the time because of her skin color, being called yeah. aggressive because you don't expect a woman of color to be confident and outspoken. But yes, you we know from data that black boys are seen as aggressive and threatening mm. and punished and penalized at school much more. I mean, there's all this research that comes out and schools have to do so much more. And we have to understand how racism works in these implicit ways, these microaggressions. It's truly heartbreaking and sobering because I was watching something on television the other day and this boy whose, whose mother was black, he's mixed heritage, and he was around 10 and his uncle was trying to explain to him the next time, don't wear a hoodie when you go out, show your mm -hmm. hands when you're stopped by somebody, don't put your hands away. Yeah. And although I know these things, but it just struck me as such a terrible thing to be aware of as a child that I have to prove that I am not threatening to somebody yeah. you know. And the thing is, I don't think people understand how that stunts a child's childhood because um especially black boys but then uh i was talking about today with a friend uh, it does happen with black girls in even worse scenarios but there's an adultification of them really early on really early on and then you know it's like okay present yourself this way in front of the police and yeah try and have fun with your friends but no you're already seen as an adult it's so confusing that I'm not surprised that by the time some of these boys get to 18 19 they do kind of um 
revolt and mm. become defiant and then still end up in the very system parents have worked so hard to keep them away from because it's actually like maybe I just want to be a kid maybe I just want to breathe easy in the world and the people that encourage them or help them do that aren't always the best people so we can still end up with a heartbreaking scenario it is it is and you what you talk about hypersexualization of black yes. girls and even brown women their bodies develop differently their bodies mature differently so yes. they're constantly facing this conflict but also comparing themselves to the bodies which are the norm in the society mm-hmm. the white bodies because that becomes a norm and the standards of beauty and and so it's so important for them to be so secure in their racial identity and it's a tough thing as a parent to do that isn't it um, yes completely <laughs> <laughs> What would you say to parents who are bringing up children of color, black mothers? You really just have to double down on making sure they see themselves in the home because that's the only community, the only communal space you can control. You also have to be not only mindful of what you say around them, but the things you do. Like my daughter notices weird things like me not liking showing my arms. She's like, oh, you never get your arms out. And I'm like, oh, I've never said anything about that. And she's like, oh, you know, are you shy about your body? And it's the it's the watching. So it's always, even if we're not feeling good as as parents, sometimes you have to fake it before you make it in your own home, just so your child thinks, okay, mum and dad have this. So I can go out in the world and be proud of my body or engage with people in a confident manner. Even though as parents, we're still shaking in our boots and feeling a bit unsure of ourselves. I am always telling people, I'm really honest about this, especially with the murder of George Floyd earlier this year um, and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, I am learning just as much as white people are learning in this moment. Being black and British has meant that I too have been shielded from so much and not able to see my own history. It's only now at 32 that I have to make a conscious effort to buy certain books and engage with certain things and speak to my husband about his heritage because um, I'm a black Caribbean who understands I'm not actually Caribbean. Someone just didn't make it to the UK or whatever. We just got kicked off the boat a bit early. I truly understand my lineage lies perhaps in Ghana or Nigeria, in my opinion. And I need to le- I need to do more about learning that. And I think, yes, when we go out into the world, always tell, remind white people to do the work and get them to engage. But in order to strengthen yourself as a parent, what work do you have to do at home? Because the culture, how it's been sold to us, our cultures, is not the truth. It's not the truth. And they've worked really hard to burn or hide that truth. And so we have to work doubly hard at uncovering what that truth is. And it is through that truth, the confidence comes in. Because like I said, my husband being born and raised in Nigeria, there is just a protective air about him. He even walks different. And I'm like, dude, where did you get that? And he's like, well, I know where I come from. 
And that line, that is such a line. And it's not a line that I can yet say confidently. And I'm very sure that once I do know where I come from, you're going to stand up a bit straighter. Because when you go out into the world, the microaggressions, the racial slurs, the attitudes towards being black and brown and successful, all of those things are going to weather away. But I come home, I will take that coat off and know I know where I come from. So that to, that for me this year would be my number one tip. Like f- find out where you come from so that you can have conversations that strengthen your child's confidence. I think that is amazing. I think having that secure sense of belonging and identity yourself is so important, but also learning continuously. We are all learning yeah. experience, I think. And I find I have slowly grown into that skin because when I first mm. came here, I was trying to revolt against everything that India stood for. And I was thinking, I'm more comfortable here. I'm more confident here, but I'm also a brown woman. And I'm going to hide that fact because I don't mm. want to be seen differently. And so it is over the years that I've become really comfortable with that part of my identity, although you always feel like you have two feet, different feet <laughs> in two different worlds. And that is a challenge as well. But yeah, no, I mean, during Black Lives Matter, as a South Asian, I had to re-examine about the biases within our own community, mm-hmm. the anti-Blackness, and say, mm-hmm. can I really stand up and say we need to do this work without examining our community and our biases as well? Mm-hmm. How was Black Lives Matter for your children, did you think, talking oh, to them about it? Yeah, Esme, Esme was just um, overwhelmed with excitement and this really impassioned by the conversation um I she is a child of extremes though so I really had to break down to her that not all white people are to be feared and not all white people in a police uniform will kill you because that was her you know she's very black and white and I had to be like no there's a balance you know mummy has white friends and you her godfather's white so you know I'm always trying to show her like you were saying earlier we can't paint everyone with the same brush but it is about understanding that um black people like many other minorities have had it really hard and what you are seeing now is a reaction to years of hardship or years of suppression um and we have we I'm 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 really happy I'm able to have really deep meaningful intelligent conversations with her and so you know she when uh, she went back to school she comes home and she tells me they're reading uh she loves a book called Sulway by Lupita Nyong'o which teaches about colorism how her white teacher just read it out in assembly and she said she felt really proud that, you know, we read that at night and she knew what the story was about. And in my mind, you know, you just do a little yes to yourself. OK, this is what these conversations are about, because I don't think we're really going to see the positive ramifications of Black Lives Matter until our kids are adults. And that's when you get to um, gauge if these conversations are sinking in if people are really doing the work because those doing the work now are the parents of the four five ten year olds so these are the conversations they're around in the home now if my daughter turns 30 35 and doesn't face half of what I've faced in terms of what I think are clear blockages because I'm black or she can go into the NHS hopefully it's still standing then and feel like she is looked upon 
um, without being an annoyance. All of those things, I can say that movement has had a great impact. I think right now, though, we don't know. We don't know. And in, in its immediate time, I found it really overwhelming because all of a sudden the things I've been speaking about for years were under a microscope for years and then just this barrage of people wanting more from me and I thought well read this article I wrote three years ago scroll back two years this has always been the mood of this conversation we can't just dip in and out as soon as things are trending what happens when the lights are off and no one's trending and and you know are you going back to work and vouching for black and brown people who deserve a promotion are you helping your colleagues feel seen? Are you only ever talking to your black and brown friends about things that make you feel comfortable? Or are you getting to the root of the issue? Are you allowing them to say their piece without you getting defensive and going, oh, but you know, I didn't do that right? The, uh, <laughs> sorry. I could go on, you know. Um, so yeah, in the immediate thing, I felt really overwhelmed. And hopefully, hopefully, it's it's the gentle push in helping the tide keep turning. No, absolutely. What you say, so much truth in it, because yes, exactly how I felt as well. These are the conversations that have been happening for a long time. And then suddenly everybody's talking about it. And I, I felt energized, but also a bit cynical and terrified that this momentum is not going to last. And mm. as you say, when the lights are turned off, are you really being an ally? Are you really listening and learning and doing the work? Or is it just a box ticking or a performative thing? I think that's always the worry. But you can hope for the best for the future for your children, because that's, if not optimistic, optimism, what do we do? I mean, we have to hope that the world is going to change for our children and the world we are doing or more parents are talking about it the more we talk mm. about it that the tide will turn no exactly i think that's um something that we all have to do together hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Um, how do you see, what, do you, what hopes do you have for the future in terms of for your children? What hopes do I have for the future? Um, what hopes do I have? I hope they have a better sense of self than I did and that the education I'm now doing at 32 going on 33, um, they feel grounded in by 15 to 18 because I think that will have a tremendous impact on the people they go into the world to be. I have already seen, again, it's a great privilege, but I've already seen the positive effects being in the private school system has for my daughter that she carries herself in a remarkable manner. When uh, my daughter talks, you know, she expects to be listened to. And I just look at her with just wide-eyed surprise because I came up in a space where I always had to fight to get my voice heard. And so my hope is that I can continue to bless them with that privilege for as long as possible and that they can take those tools into the world and then help people who weren't as privileged, people from their community who weren't as privileged. Because for me to have these children who know so much about their history and are supported at home and go to these really great schools, to then go out and keep that energy to themselves, that's part of the problem. Because that is the problem of racism. It's that structure wanting it all for themselves. So I'm like, okay, with this great education and all this love and support you've got at home, you have to go out and reach back, right? You have to teach other people who may not have had that privilege all that time to know where they came from, those things. And yeah, that's my hope for them. To bless them so much, to give them such an abundance of blessings and assurance of self that it can only overflow and other people can catch it. I don't want them to think, oh, well, mum and dad have taught us these things or sent us these places so we can retain this power. It's the retention of power that's got us in this mess. No, absolutely. The notion of privilege, the intersectionality of privilege, I always say we have to talk with our children about it because even though power lies in certain things, these power hierarchies are formed due to the privilege, the notion of privilege and keeping it to ourselves. And we see that with a lot of people of color who have these internalized beliefs and racism who are discriminating against people of, of their same communities rather than actually saying, I have reached here, um, I'm going to remove some of the barriers from your life as well because yeah. I have these opportunities to do so and I think this is something I've always tried to talk with my children at least with my oldest making mm -hmm. her sure that she leverages her privileges while knowing that there she's going to face barriers and obstructions due to her skin color but she also has um, these opportunities to help others who might not be as privileged as others and I think this intersectionality is something we need to really talk about how do you empower your child to actually when she if she ever faces forbid any kind of racism or racial bullying how do you empower your child without making them feel afraid how do I empower my child so we have a, a open door policy in our house which is very um, strange given that my partner was raised in Nigeria and I was raised by my maternal grandparents and we come from backgrounds where there is just an air of respectability politics and see and don't see and be in pain but not say anything and we work really hard that you know at dinner time whenever we will drop everything we're doing to have whatever she deems is a problematic or uncomfortable conversation nothing is too much if my daughter asks a direct answer 
a direct question, I give her a direct answer. I'm not a parent that has the time to bluff um, because I feel like the world's going to try and do that to her already. And so with that, I feel like it just gives her an understanding that she can be honest if she's confronted in that way. And also the situation at school, there were things I should have picked up on before, like her coming home and saying at the time she had dreadlocks, her coming home and saying she wanted to cut all her hair off. And then after the racist incident, me going back to that conversation, her saying, yeah, they will tell me my hair's really ugly and rough and it should be straight and smooth. And and so it's also always um, making time for the things that um, seem really fleeting, but have really deep roots. So it, you know, it's about giving up that time and reassuring her of her beauty, showing her herself. You know, brands and businesses are catching up, but even like, I don't even leave certain magazines on my coffee table. Like I go through it first and if there's not enough adverts with people that look like us, away it goes. I'll read it in my in, in, in my own private time. But even on the coffee table, the books are strictly by only black and brown authors. And it's very purposeful. And someone could turn and say, oh, reverse racism. No, 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 no. When she goes out into the world, everything's whitewashed. Everything's skewed to the white view. So in this house, like Beyonce said, black is king. And I need her to be able to see that everywhere. And I think that helps unconsciously prepare her for the hardships and the questions that will come, but will give her a strong, um, a strong self-confidence. Absolutely. It has to be purposeful parenting, as you say. Mm. He's actively challenging these things. Like my children who came back from nursery and said she wants blonde hair because it's prettier. Mm. And I thought, okay, this could be just a childish thing because she's so seen frozen and she wants to be like <laughs> Elsa. But even though we are diversifying everything, it's so hard sometimes to just make sure that she they're not seeing these representations. But I had to put aside my discomfort or my squeamishness about talking about this and actively talk to her about why she thought that. Why did she think that blonde hair is better? Show her examples of why brown hair, black hair are beautiful and brown black skin is beautiful and gorgeous. And it's just about actively challenging these things, I think, for parents, isn't it? It's so important. Yes, yes definitely. <laughs> it's... Finally, I, I think we're running, I could speak with you all day. It's been such a fascinating conversation. Listen to you talk about your children. So beautiful and lovely. Um, finally, would you have any recommendations about books or toys for other parents? Books or toys? Um, of course, your book. Of course. <laughs> Which I sped through, guys. I sped through. And it was the first book. It was the first book ever. I was going to say in a long time. Though, the first book ever that really got it. And in a really concise, clear manner. So well done to you for that. Um, Esme's favourite is Solway. Again, because this is the thing. You know, when we turn away from the white gaze, black and brown communities struggle with colourism a lot to a very detrimental effect as a darker skinned black woman and Esme slightly lighter than me and it's so funny that as her mother I'm very conscious of what her idea of beauty may be or how it may be skewed in her favour so um Solway for any 
black or brown household, I think is really important because we internally really struggle with colorism. So there's that. Um, a, a, another book for adults that just blew me away and still to this day is one of my number ones, Akala's Natives. It's, it's, it is the history. I wish that was readily available in schools. And even though it's not, I think as parents, we have a duty to self-educate ourselves to that level. It is very heavy. And I had to take frequent breaks just to suck in all of this knowledge, this new understanding of this place that I've always called home, but, but no, is not my home. And so, yeah, those would be my three books for sure. That's just fantastic. We love schoolware as well. And what you said about colorism, absolutely. And again, my children being white passing, I think that's yeah. another privilege that I have to be aware of as well. <laughs> but thank you so much, Candice. Thank you for your time. It's been so lovely to speak with you. No, thank you. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. This was Wish We Knew What To Say with me, Pragya Garwal. Thank you so much for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.